Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. That uh, oxytocin hormone um, is, uh, you know, uh, it's increased in the dog and in us. And so uh, dogs have a, a unique uh, expression of oxytocin. Uh, wolves don't have and uh, you know basically they've hijacked our social bonding Hello and welcome to this episode of the Pursuit of Happiness podcast. I'm your host Ryan McGuire. This is a podcast where I get to talk with people from all over the world who have a story to share and knowledge in areas that we can learn from and apply to our lives to help make us better and happier people. This is a very special episode to me because I get to sit down with Dr. Brian Hare, PhD, and talk about one of my favorite things on the planet, which is dogs. I know there are millions of people out there that love their dogs as much as I do because of how much happiness they bring them every day. So I really wanted to do an episode on our furry friends, though I had no idea I'd land one of the best people on the planet to talk about dogs. Dr. Brian Hare is literally in my backyard working as a professor at Duke University in evolutionary anthropology, psychology, and neuroscience. He's written the book on dogs, seriously. He's a New York Times bestseller for his book, The Genius of Dogs, talking about his travels all over the world to do research on where dogs came from, what makes them special, how they communicate, and everything else you'd really want to know. I get to touch on some of that in this episode, asking the questions I always wanted to know about my two best friends. So if you're a dog lover, this episode is for you. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Brian Hare on the podcast, a core member of the Center of Cognitive Neuroscience, Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology and Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke, go Devils, received a PhD from Harvard, a New York Times bestseller, and also known as the Dog Guy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for joining my podcast. Hey, what a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So the name of my podcast, The Pursuit of Happiness, I knew when I created that I needed to have an episode at the very least to talk about dogs. There's nothing in my life that brings me happiness like my dogs. And I got word of you and I, sh- I shot for the stars. Um, I reached out and and I got and I got you. This is amazing. Like I'm super happy to have you. And there's probably, I don't know, is there anyone on this planet that knows dogs better than you? So, <laughs> Oh yeah. Well, I think so. I appreciate it. Uh, yeah. I think, um, you know, science is, uh, really a group sport. It's a team sport. So, uh, there's lots of my colleagues who I would defer to. Uh, I have a certain expertise, but, uh, definitely, uh, uh, I could, I could name some other people who are, uh, even more knowledgeable. Well, I might have to reach out to them and have them on too. So, 
Uh, so yeah, so tell me how you got to kind of where you are today with all those titles and then how you kind of focused a little more on, on dogs. Well, uh, I was, I grew up in Atlanta and I was partially raised by a Labrador retriever, uh, who I grew up at, as my best friend. And I didn't think anything of it that he played fetch cause he's a Labrador retriever. Uh, but one thing he did was, uh, he, sometimes he had more than one ball and he would bring back multiple tennis balls. And, you know, as a kid, you thought it was funny sometimes to throw the first one and then you throw the second one and he'd come back and didn't know where the other one was, but he still wanted to find it. So you'd point in the direction that you'd thrown the second one. And more often than not, he'd run off in the direction you pointed and start looking for it. And I never th thought anything of it until I got to college and I was working with my undergraduate mentor. And he basically said that following gestures is something that only humans do. And I thought, well, wait a second. I, you know, my whole childhood, my dog did that. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Don't, don't dogs do that. Yeah. Uh, and, and he said, no, 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 no. They just look at your finger. And I'm like, uh, no, no, they really don't. Uh, and so that's what started the whole thing. Uh, and he was arguing that, uh, only humans follow gestures because following gestural communication early in human development is critical for learning language and participating in culture. So mm -hmm. it was kind of a neat moment and it kind of launched the whole thing. So I have two Huskies, one of them being 15 now and the other one being three. And I read your book, The, the Genius of Dogs. So I highly recommend that to any dog lovers out there. You're going to learn so much. And mm -hmm. there was so many times where I was like, oh, no kidding. Really? Like it's so many things started to click after having a dog for so long. It's like you kind of thought things you didn't know. You weren't quite sure. And you really put into perspective and gave me facts and so many things make so much more sense now. Um, so I highly recommend that book to any dog lovers out there. So one thing that I loved is I had heard kind of back and forth on dogs coming from wolves. That that's pretty much a fact now, correct? Like, you know, that for sure. Yes, we know that for sure. Dogs evolve from wolves. Uh, and we know that from genomic comparisons and, uh, you know, uh, actually genetic comparisons before that. So, uh, what, what is a little bit more controversial is are the, extant the uh, living wolves today uh did dogs evolve from the species that are alive today it, it, there, some of the uh genomic comparisons suggest that the the type of wolf that dogs evolved from the pop i should say the subgroup or subspecies of wolf that uh, dogs evolved from it might be extinct um and so the wolves today are very very closely related and would look almost exactly like that animal but uh, genetically, you can pick up a signal that it might have been a little bit different than the wolves we have now. Okay. Yes. I've having two huskies, my dogs get called wolves constantly nah. by, by people, which is walking down the street. Oh my God, look at that wolf. And that's one of the reasons myself that I've always had like an, an affection for huskies was because they look like wolves. I've loved wolves since I was a little kid. So um, they're awesome. They're, they're, very intriguing, very smart animals. I would love to hear. So you went up to Massachusetts and you spent some time with wolves, right? Like mm -hmm. how was, how was that experience? Mm -hmm. Well, and uh, you know, I was in graduate school and uh, we got interested to understand how similar different dogs are because wolves are not only interesting in their own regard, but they can tell us a lot about uh, what domestication did to dogs. Uh, if, if a dog is different from a wolf, it might be that uh, during the process of domestication, 
whatever trait it is we're looking at is, is a, a result of interactions with humans since uh, dogs split off from wolves. So I was studying wolves uh, in a sanctuary, trying to understand how they solve problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it was amazing. First of all, you have the, you know, whoa, grandma, your teeth are so big kind of uh, response to them. Like, dude, that's really big. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, um, and, and then, you know, they look, you know, they really look deeply into your eyes and you feel, whoa, that's not the, you know, feeling you get from a dog. Um, and then you realize very quickly that their world is oriented around uh, other wolves and their, and their pack mates and that you're kind of not that interesting, actually, which is such, which is another uh, real different feeling for when you, you know, if you go to a kennel or something, I mean, most dogs, if they've been raised with humans, they're interested in your people. Uh, they're not really that interested in you. Um, so those are kind of the big things. Uh, and now I've been lucky enough to work at a wolf sanctuary in Minnesota for the last four or five years. And we've been studying puppies there, wolf puppies, um, and comparing them to dog puppies. And so, uh, all the things I just described, I think are sort of, uh, start to appear early in uh, wolf development. Can I ask you what that Minnesota sanctuary is called and do they allow visitors? Uh, yeah, they do. It's called the Wildlife Science Center. Um, and they're in uh, Stacy, Minnesota. It's a wonderful sanctuary. And um, they have a very large population of captive wolves. That's that's so awesome. I will definitely visit. I A few years ago, I went to a place called Predators of the Heart. Have you heard of that? It's, in, uh-huh. it's just north of Seattle. Oh, okay. And it's a wolf conservation. And I had the same experience you had when I saw the wolves. Mm-hmm. And I'm so used to my huskies and I just got kind of a little too friendly and the wolf put its um, tooth right under my jaw, which Whoa. is like three times the size of my, <laughs> and I was like, for a moment, I said, this tooth can literally go right through my mouth if it yeah. really wanted to. Yeah. Yeah. yeah There's just, oh man, they're so cool. There's animals are so amazing. Um, so from there, how far along the path was your trip to Siberia to study those silver foxes? Well, uh, that was really cool. There, uh, in 1959, uh, some Russian scientists uh, began selecting foxes to be friendly towards people. Um, and I was really interested in what domestication did to dogs' behavior and psychology and their development. And that gave us a window uh, into trying to think about um, what, you know, domestication actually is. Um, and what this experiment found was that when you selected, uh, when you select foxes to be friendlier towards people, to be attracted and want to interact with them, uh, by accident, after 10, 15, 20 generations, you start to see all sorts of other changes. Uh, they had a control line that they didn't select for how they behave towards people. And those control foxes um, are critical because you can compare them to the foxes you selected for friendliness and see what that selection for friendliness did. And in the population that was selected for friendliness, they got nicer and were attracted to people, but they also started to have uh, an increased prevalence of curly tails and shorter faces and uh, different colored uh, coats, uh, smaller teeth. They had changes in their physiology um, as well. And so I went to study those uh, populations, the experimental foxes and the, and the control foxes to see if they could use gestures and communicate with us, kind of like how my dog did when I played fetch, even though they had never been selected for that, uh, just like they'd never been selected to have curly tails or, or floppy ears. And we found that actually the foxes were really, really good at using human gestures. And, and, and at a dog level, 
even though, and, and I actually worked with the little kits, fox kits, not the adults. Yeah. Um, and the fox kits were just as good as dog puppies. And um, so it seems like selection for friendliness really is key to what is domestication and it changes uh, cognition too. That was one of the biggest surprises of the book was, I think I was under the assumption that you were under when I, I believe in the book, you had said um, the smartest, you expect the smartest to kind of move, you know, move along down the line, I guess, but it was the friendliest. And I guess it makes a lot of sense when you explained it was how they became friendly to humans to kind of get the garbage and the trash that they were leaving behind for food. And yeah, exactly. Yep. Which in a way makes them the smartest. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Food. Exactly. Exactly. So as, as humans became super predators and we had projectile weapons for the first time, um, the, uh, that really set up uh, a new ecological situation where we're creating a lot of waste. Um, and that waste was a reliable resource for uh, wolves to potentially kind of put down their predatory uh, ways and say, hey, you know what, maybe I'll just scavenge. Yeah. Um, and, and so some wolves couldn't resist the, that reliable food source and those that were attracted and were able to be friendly and um, approach uh, if they bred together, you could have the same selection pressure over generations you had with the foxes. And that's what we think happened and uh, kick-started uh, dog domestication. How many years ago would you say that was, ish, give or take? So the, so the selection, or sorry, so the genomic comparisons of wolves and dogs suggest a date where dog domestication began around 15 to 25,000 years ago. Wow. So, so it's before the first seed had been sown. Wow. So these are people who had no agriculture, so they'd be living as hunter-gatherer foragers. Um, and that's partly why the story of us domesticating dogs doesn't make any sense. Because if, if it was that it was a bunch of agriculturalists, and let's say the domestication date for dogs was 5,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago, okay, maybe that makes a little bit more sense, where people started collecting up uh, wolf puppies, and you could see maybe how over generations they were breeding plants. Maybe they were, maybe they bred the wolves too. Um, but th the first organism ever domesticated through interaction with humans was the wolf, uh, and it was fifteen to twenty-five thousand years ago. So uh, foragers would not have said, "Hey, I know while I go forage, I'm going to leave a wolf with my kids right uh, at camp." Like that just uh, it, so it had to be the wolves chose us. The the wolves chose humans and self domesticated. That makes, that makes a lot of sense. After just listening and reading your book is a lot of it started to make sense. I never would have guessed any of it as you probably might not have in a lot of. Oh, no, 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 no. I, I thought the same thing everybody else did. Yeah. I thought, oh yeah, humans domesticated dogs, duh. Right. Um, but it was going to Siberia and then more genomic results coming out, making that possibility seem uh, remote, if not silly. How was your visit to Siberia? Where exactly did you go in Siberia? <laughs> Uh, I was in uh, a city called Novosibirsk. It's the third largest city uh, in Russia. Okay. And it, it's uh, just north of uh, Kazakhstan and uh, near the Altai Mountains and the Ob Sea. Uh, it was wonderful. Uh, you know, I, I, being a scientist, I was obsessed with uh, getting the data. I, had, I only had 11 weeks. Um, and so uh, I had a lot to do in 11 weeks. Yeah. But uh, we still had time and the Russians wouldn't, they, they wouldn't uh, let you... Uh, not have fun 
And of course, if you if you hadn't had uh, you know a handle of uh, vodka every weekend, uh, they'd kick you out. So, <laughs> uh, I learned to drink heavily. Oh, I'm uh, sure for the summer. <laughs> There's no choice. There's no choice. Like I, I I'm not. I don't drink that much. But when you go there, forget it. Uh, you better you better learn quick. So you went in the summer. So how like what was the temperature in the summer? Uh, it was it was not that different than North Carolina. It wasn't quite as okay. humid, of course. But, oh yeah. But, uh, I don't think it ever, I don't think, I can't remember, you know, it's probably the low 90s max. Oh, wow. Was, that, yeah, I, I mean, never would have guessed that. I think Siberia, I think it's snow and freezing. <laughs> yeah, that's the rest of the year. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think it, it didn't get in it, it. It never got into the mid 90s. And, and then it would have been, you know, in the high 80s, but okay. as high temperatures. But at night, you know, it was 70. I mean, it was nice. It was, it was actually really beautiful. Um, the, I would say that in terms of the, the flora and fauna, it was a little, um, uninteresting because, uh, you know, being, a you know, a, a giant, uh, tundra plain, mm-hmm. uh, the biodiversity is quite low. Uh, but other than that, it was great. People were great. While Good you food. were, while you were up there, did you have any interest in kind of, uh, finding like animals or DNA or whatever, like the permafrost, do you ever... Uh, I didn't, but I, I didn't, but one of my, uh, one of the, one of my colleagues, a director of an institute that I have worked at, um, he was working in the Altai mountains nearby and it's two hours away. Uh, and that's where the, um, uh, bone that they were able to extract the ancient DNA, uh, from the pinky bone for the Denisovans. Um, and so they were able to extract ancient DNA and discover a totally new species of human. Wow. Uh, two hours away from the caves nearby. So, so I have not uh, done work where I try to find, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, ancient animals uh, in, in permafrost, but there was the dog not, not that long ago that was discovered. Uh, well, I guess it was a wolf puppy. Um, I guess, I think they dated it to 30,000 years or something like this. Um, I saw an article today about that. I saw, I don't know if it was a new one or mm-hmm. one. Wow. That's, and because I've seen like um, like shows on TV and whatnot where they're looking for the woolly mammoth DNA. Right, same idea. Frost. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I wish I could be more excited about it. I every time I, I every time I hear about it, you know, and people say, "Oh, we discovered this new uh, animal remain uh, in the permafrost." I mean, the actual story of why they found it is because it's falling. Yeah, um, yeah. And, and and you know, which means that there's methane gonna be released at a crazy rate. And yeah. so it's actually not a good thing. I would right. I, I would honestly prefer it stayed frozen, but <laughs> that, that, that's just me. Yeah, I, I completely get where you're coming from. Uh, so you've mentioned just about five minutes ago, curly tails. Why curly tails? Is that a sign of friendliness? Uh, where did that curly tails come from? So when you have selection for friendliness and um, you have all these changes that happen that are not selected for. So when the Russians were breeding foxes together, they really just looked at, are they friendly to humans? And they bred them together. They weren't looking at what they, their physical changes in their bodies. They didn't, they weren't interested in that. Um, so why curly tails? Well, um, it ends up that, or why floppy ears or why do their faces get shorter? All the changes, why, why these, why this set of changes? And, uh, similar changes seem to reappear in, in multiple species. I think the best evidence for that is um, the foxes also have the star mutation, this white spot on their forehead. Um, 
and the control foxes don't have that very often. And so that's one that you see recurring again and again mm. uh, in uh, domesticated animals. Gotcha. Um, this, you know, like a horse with a white spot on their forehead or whatever, pigs, et cetera. So um, the foxes had that star mutation appear after they selected them for friendliness. Um, so what, what we think happens is when you select for friendliness, it actually has, you have to change a really uh, important uh, genetic pathway early in fetal development. Um, and as your spine is developing and your head is developing that will have your brain, um, there's this weird uh, moment where this, this uh, section of your spine has these special cells that appear and they appear for just a week. And uh, they're called neural crest cells. And you've heard of stem cells, right? Mm -hmm. yep. uh, and the whole point of the whole cool, cool thing about stem cells is they're pluripotent or they can develop into lots of different uh, cell types. So that's what these neural crest cells are. They're stem cells and they then migrate all over the body. Um, and they create things like bone and cartilage. Um, and they're implicated in um, a whole host of other physiological functions. But guess what they do? they're critical to the development of hormonal systems that are involved in uh, fight or flight and attraction uh, or friendly responses. So the idea is if you wanna have an animal that's friendlier, you have to play around with that neural crest uh, and the way that those cells migrate. But if you tweak it so the hormones change to have a friendlier animal, well, now you've changed it in a way that all these cells that go do morphological work also get changed. Wow. Um, and so that's the right now that's the leading hypothesis and um people are working hard to figure out how to test it are you one of those people well i i uh i am not testing it directly because i don't do uh you know uh developmental cellular biology uh, that's <laughs> that's that's a that's a whole nother level of, uh, of biology uh beyond my pay grade by the way i've seen videos on your website uh brianhair.net and where you're like testing with the puppies if you ever need help with that uh, okay all right i got a recruit <laughs> let, let me know and, right, or, and or the wolf puppies in minnesota um, all right i'm game for that too and i'll pay for awesome my, i'll pay for my own ticket <laughs> nice we're we i good to know we got a recruit here the, uh, it is tough work it's tough work somebody's hey, gotta right? do it exactly yeah. i'll volunteer so i love the title of your book genius of dogs if you could for a second, just explain why you chose that title. I completely get it after the first chapter. I completely understood why you named it that, but for people who are listening. Sure, sure. I mean, normally when we think about uh, genius, you think of Einstein or whatever, this you know, really um, unbelievably intelligent individual um, who uh, is somehow stands out relative to the crowd. You know, maybe, um, uh, you know, uh, Steve Jobs or whatever, somebody like that. Um, so uh, we had a different definition of genius because I'm thinking about different species. And for me, it's really easy to make the case that dogs are genius because um, they, uh, you know, they evolve from wolves. Wolves are this uh, competitor with humans. Uh, as 15 to 25,000 years ago, we already covered, you have foragers who are competing for food with wolves. Right. And uh, wolves are now endangered, sadly, everywhere they um, uh, normally would be found in the wild. Meanwhile, dogs, there's over 100 million of them. Uh, so whatever it is, and they sleep in our beds, and we, we have a, uh, a, uh, an industry in the United States, the pet industry, which is 
uh, the seventh or eighth largest industry. It's bigger than Hollywood. Because and of most, me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and most of, most of that is dedicated to dogs. Uh, so boy, they have won big and they have won completely. So whatever it is that allowed them to um, do so uh, is, is their genius. And so mm -hmm. then when you, when you start asking the question, well, how are they so successful? Um, they have evolved a type of psychology that sort of hijacks us and our pleasure pathway, our social pleasure pathways. And, uh, uh, it's done really well for them. What is the thing about dogs that make us love them so much? Do you, do you know, is it the unconditional love? Is it just always happy to see you? Is that, is that what it is? Or is there more of a, well, as a well, as a pet owner and a, and a, you know somebody who's a dog lover, if you just ask me, sure, I'd say, yeah, man, they unconditional love, they loyalty, they're so fun, they're always happy to see you. I mean, when do you not feel good when you're around your dog? Right. So, um, you know, they just just look at them; they're just beautiful. Yeah. Um, but it's actually from a, if you ask me, as a scientist, uh, there there has been um, some progress in figuring out what that actually is. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, when you have um, people physically interacting with their dog, playing or touching their dog, um, it increases oxytocin, which is this um, hormone um, that uh, leads to social bonding. And that uh, oxytocin hormone um, is, uh, you know, uh, it's increased in the dog and in us. And so uh, dogs have a, a unique uh, expression of oxytocin uh, wolves don't have. And, mm. uh, you know, basically they've hijacked our social bonding pathway. Okay. This is exactly why I asked you. There's, I don't know anybody else I could ask that question. that got that type of answer. <laughs> so thank you for that. Yeah. They, they hug us with their eyes and the same hormone that causes social bonding is expressed in humans as it is if we were looking at a young infant. So that was going to be my next question. Actually, you just said the eyes. So one thing owning a dog for the last 15 years, it always looks like they're looking at you in the eye. Are they really, do they know what a human eye is? Do they know to look us in the eye? Uh, I don't know that they're conscious of it, uh, but they certainly uh, are attracted to make eye contact. And um, they do make uh, eye contact in a way that wolves, for instance, don't with other, uh, sorry, with humans. Mm -hmm. I think wolves, um, uh, we'll make eye contact with each other, but uh, often extreme eye contact would be a threat. And some people who train dogs then argue, oh, well, it's a threat in dogs. Um, not necessarily. It's a threat if there's another cue that like the context, I might be in trouble or you're growling at me and making eye contact. Okay, that's a threat. But eye contact is not always a threat. And I think dogs enjoy looking at us um, and they know we enjoy being looked at. Yeah. Um, the uh, I think the um, you know sort of the other interesting part about that is uh, why we enjoy looking at them, and uh, it ends up that there's a there's two muscles in the face of dogs that have uh, been altered as a result of their um, interactions with us, and um, maybe as a result of domestication. Um, so those muscles actually, um, it's the, when dogs make that guilty eye look where they just, you know, they kind of look away and they, they, they look like, you know, they kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of squint their brows and look just like so pathetic and sad and cute. Um, but the other thing that, and they're, and they're muscles that actually pull back their eyes and you can see more of the white of their eyes. 
Um, and so there've been really careful studies of the musculature of wolves and dogs and wolves can't make that muscle uh, movement and they don't even have the muscle that allows them to move eyes that way. So why wow. would dogs have this weird muscle around their eyes? Well, it ends up that humans have cells in our superior temporal sulcus as part of our uh, temporal lobe of our brain that are responsive to white sclera, the white part of your eye. They're dedicated just to recognize and respond to white sclera because it, because humans are the only primate that have whites of our eyes. It's how we recognize individuals of our own species. So dogs literally are pulling back their eyes and showing us white of their eyes in a way to signal to us that I'm like you, I'm like you, but unconsciously to parts of our brain uh, that we don't, we don't even know that are important for recognizing others as human. This is fascinating. <laughs> I'm so happy to have you on this podcast. I am learning so much. So speaking of eyes, what can dogs see as far as color compared to us? Um, uh, that's a great question. So um, in terms of uh, what dogs can see, um, they ha so we have uh, trichromatic vision uh, and they have dichromatic vision. Okay. Um, so basically think about it as, um, you know, uh, we can see, they can see two thirds of the colors that we can see. Um, so, so, you know, this whole question about, oh, are dogs colorblind? Do they see in black and white? Um, no, they, they can see color. Uh, they just, we have, uh, we have basically, um, better resolution and we can see uh, a wider spectrum of colors than they can, but they can see color, uh, very, very well. Do you know, do you have any idea what color they can see like the most or more, more vividly? Uh, yeah, I always forget, but I think it's blue and yellow are the ones that uh, they struggle with. But I can't remember. Um, I'm trying to remember. No, I don't think it's, it's, it might be blue. You know, I can't remember if it's yellow or, or green. Um, it might be blue and green or it's blue and yellow. I can never remember, but, <laughs> but they, 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 uh, of the visual light spectrum, um, it's really, there's kind of two colors they can't see very well and they would see them in shades of gray or uh, as a totally different color. Okay. And just out of curiosity, I don't know if you would know this, but having Huskies, they both have blue eyes. Do you have any idea where the blue eye came from? Uh, so one of the things that happens when you uh, select uh, animals, uh, you know, in domestication is you end up getting uh, not just whiter sclera, uh, but you can also have changes in uh, uh, pupil or uh, pupia, you know, the, the color of our pupils. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, lots of domesticated animals have funny colored pupils and those neural crest cells I was talking about that migrate in a funny way, um, it, they actually are involved in the development of eyes. And it's almost certainly that that's neural crest tissue that um, uh, those neural crest cells are developing in a funny way and they're creating less melanin. Mm. Um, just like the coat color changes, the eye color changes. Um, so we don't know, uh, but uh, that's uh, right now uh, the, uh, the leading idea on that. Okay. And having blue eyes, are they at any disadvantage at all as far as um, seeing sight or disease or anything? No? Uh, disease, I don't know. Uh, but in terms of their visual acuity, uh, it's like having blue, eye blue eyes as a person. Okay. Be any, any different. Great. <laughs> That's good to know. As, as long as the muscle works that opens and closes the pupil, they're in great shape. Awesome. Yeah. So obviously we're getting to the dog questions here because I'm super curious. 
Um, do they have a sense of time and do they remember? Uh, definitely remember. And uh, there's lots of evidence that, um, you know, dogs, let's say relative to cats, dogs have a much better um, uh, working memory. They can remember more chunks of information and they can remember for longer. Um, uh, you know, in the realm of a few minutes, that's pretty easy for a dog to remember something. Um, and then uh, specific memories they can remember for very long amounts of time. So things like who you are or where they live, uh, meaning uh, there's the difference between recall, uh, sorry, recall memory and recognition where you mm -hmm. recall something like, oh, I know where I was this morning if I think about it or what I was doing. Um, and then there's recognition, like I see it and now I know, oh yeah, yeah, I know that. Uh, no, I don't know that. I think the, the recall memory where you're sort of, imagining what happened this morning, uh, I think that's probably more limited than in the case of humans. Um, but in terms of recognition, um, absolutely, their memory would probably be a lot like ours. Um, okay. and, that, and that would help them, you know, like the old, you know, the stories of uh, soldiers returning home, etc. Um, I think they recognize their owners. And yeah. that's a memory. That's a type of memory. Um, you know, are they sitting there while they're away a year later, you know, recalling the time they were running in the field with their owner? Um, I, I don't think they do that in a conscious, active way, but I, I don't have any evidence that they don't. Um, but I'm, I get, I'm guessing they don't. Um, and then uh, you asked me about time. Uh, in terms of time, yes, they, they would have a sense of time because um, there's a part of the brain uh, that is uh, in all mammals that's timing things like hunger and how fast you should breathe. Um, are you thirsty? Should you sleep? Um, and so uh, there's, uh, you know, our bodies are built, our neurobiology is built to um, uh, keep time uh, in a certain way. Um, but when you say time, I imagine you mean more like a conscious uh, awareness. Yeah, because I get the occasional, it's five o'clock, time to eat now. And so like, how do they know it's time to uh, eat? Like, okay, so that, right, that's going to be their hypothalamus. So that's the part of the brain that's kind of... Um, creating time in the body. Um, and so hypothalamus would send signals uh, through the nervous system uh, and into the stomach. And so, you know, basically gastric acid is gonna be created uh, at a certain time of day that they tend to eat because uh, the hypothalamus is saying, hey, this is the time of day that usually we, I get feedback okay. uh, from the stomach that, you know, you got fed. So I'm gonna start in anticipation of that creating gastric acid. Um, so yes, in that sense, yes, they keep time. Their bodies have, uh, you know, sort of uh, ways to keep up homeostasis. Um, and uh, the hypothalamus would be in charge of that. But that's very basal. That's not a, a yeah. cortical, uh, you know, area that you necessarily have conscious control of. What if I took like, let's say a seven day vacation and came back after seven days? Do they realize, do they have an idea it was seven days or that's just like one long stretch of time to them? Yeah, I don't, I don't know that they would be able to demarcate it as seven days. And I don't know that a human could if they didn't have a watch. Uh, you know, if we had somebody in a sleep chamber where in one of the sleep experiments where they, they're, all time is taken away, um, you see that people don't go to bed at the right time and they, yeah. and they lose the ability. And actually, apparently, uh, you move an hour ahead every day. Um, and so I think they would have a hard time knowing it was seven days. They'd know it was a long time. Uh, maybe they would know how many times they went to sleep, uh, but they, it would be hard for even a human to know that. Right. Without, yeah, that's without, a good point. Without tools. That's a good point. 
Another question I've always, I've actually Googled this and I can't find an exact answer. Why do dogs after they pee or poop, like wipe their paws in the ground and like scurry after that? Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so wolves and many carnivores have glands um, in their um, uh, legs and paws, near their legs and paws. And so when they're doing that, they're actually marking, um, they're scenting, uh, they're providing a little bit extra information about, uh, you know, who, who it was, who was here. Really? Um, yeah, so, so um, uh, they, they do have glands on their paws and that's what they're doing. They're leaving more information for a potential uh, social, um, you know, uh, you know, another dog or in the case of wolves, um, you know, it could be a competitor. It could be, mm -hmm. um, you know, somebody they might want to interact with. Yeah. Okay. I'm, I'm glad I found that out. I've Googled that before. I thought it was like to cover up like what they just did or to spread it or like, I had no idea. So, well, it might spread it. It, it is true. <laughs> I've, I've, I've been, uh, you know, seen it and been victims of that process. Right? <laughs> but, uh, but I, I think, uh, the glands are probably a big part of the story as well. Okay. All right. And so let's get to communication. Uh, dogs barking. It's not something I'm familiar with having Huskies. They don't bark. So in one of your chapters in your book, the genius of dogs, it is about barking and communication. What's something that you learn from that, that you just didn't know going in? Well, I thought what was really cool was um, I didn't understand how wolves used barking. Um, and also seeing the foxes, it was kind of the same story, is the control foxes or the wolves um, that I've had the pleasure of hanging out with. Um, barking is really used uh, as communication between um, uh, parents and offspring um, to sort of uh, call offspring to come be fed or for offspring to try to get attention uh, from their parents. The only other context that barking really occurs is um, when wolves are very territorial and they actually will kill each other. Um, it's very rare, actually. Um, I shouldn't say very rare, but it's relatively rare uh, that mammals in their interactions between different groups will murder each other. But uh, we happen to be in a family of organisms that does this. Chimpanzees do it, gorillas do it, um, and wolves uh, do as well. Uh, and they bark uh, as a territorial warning, if they if they see a threat in their the periphery of their territory, they'll bark uh, at at you know their neighboring rival. Um, and, but that's really the two ways that barks are used. Uh, and so and they and like you say with your huskies, they don't bark at very high frequency in any other context. Well, huskies, um, my guys, they talk. They'll talk and howl a little bit. So I guess my question is on top of that is why. Is that because they're more related to wolves than other dogs? Like, why is it they choose to howl and kind of talk like that and communicate instead of barking? Do you have any mm -hmm. idea? Well, uh, in the case of huskies, uh, huskies, when, uh, you know, because of the genomic revolution, uh, it, the, you know, we have, we have these strong ideas about dog breeds and their origins. Um, but uh, those ideas uh, were not that well written down in history. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it was passed on um, through stories. And so, you know, as, as science progressed, we always want to test ideas that or stories that people have and see if, you know, uh, any of it makes sense in light of new ways to uh, find out. And so uh, genomicists were able to go and compare genomes of dogs of a variety of breeds 
and wolves and other uh, related canids like coyotes, et cetera. Um, and, and the big discovery was that first of all, uh, most of the breeds in the United States that we would recognize are 150 to 200 years old maximally. Mm-hmm. And they're all from Europe. Mm-hmm. So the European dog breeds are actually only 100 to 200 years old. Yeah. And that is really remarkable if you think about what I said earlier about dogs having evolved 15 to 25,000 years ago. Right. So for the, for the vast majority of the existence of dogs, they probably were living in a state that would be more like what you'd seen in an Australian dingo mm. um, or a village dog in a developing country. Um, so the European dog breeds are a very new thing, uh, number one. Uh, number two is when those studies were done, one of, there were about seven breeds that fell out uh, that were more ancient, um, that had or are inferred to be more ancient because they had more wolf-like genes. Um, and so Sharpays, uh, Dingoes, New Guinea singing dogs, um, uh, a few other breeds that have Asian origin and Huskies. Uh, um, Akitas, uh, those, those breeds are all, um, have high prevalence of wolf genes. Um, so the thinking is that those breeds are more ancient and older. Um, and so I think the argument for why your Huskies are doing less barking is because as selection turned to artificial selection, and there was a lot of selection on dog behavior and morphology the last 200 years, there was this so, uh, apparently a selection that led to barking being used in more diver- diverse contexts and for a variety of reasons that huskies uh, did not experience that type of selection. And so they're more wolf-like in terms of their use of communication. I okay. Think. That makes sense. Cause I know when they're like talking to me, I always say they're talking people are like, you're crazy. I'm like, no, they're literally like saying something to me. They're communicating. Sure. Yeah. I'm always and wondered. They, they certainly can intentionally communicate. Oh and, yeah, and, and uh, you know, I don't. I think everything you just said is perfectly appropriate. I think where people, um, you know, might get into a little trouble if if you were being geeky and sciencey about it is people like to say, "Oh, dogs can talk, or they have language, or whatever." Um, I think if you say they communicate and yeah. they're trying to, they're intentionally trying to tell me something. Oh yeah, I, no scientist is going to disagree with. You. There's plenty of evidence for that. I found it fascinating too that there's different kind of barks that dogs let out that we can't tell the difference, but they can, they can sense, was it the tone and the pitch of what they're That's trying right. to communicate? That's exactly right. That's right. So That's tone crazy. and pitch. Yeah. And uh, so, and some really clever experiments, uh, you know, doing some playbacks and trying to see if the dogs could pick up on it and then doing the same thing with humans and saying, okay, do you, can you hear the difference? And does the dog seem afraid when it's barking or happy or whatever? And, yeah, people, it's hard. I've, I've done yeah. it too. And, and I'm like, oh, I don't I'm sure I'm, it is. I don't, I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> so one thing I'm kind of curious is, um, I'm curious with my older dog being 15, about the lifespan of dogs. Mm-hmm. Do you know from any research you've done or people you may know, is anything being done about the lifespan and maybe elongating that? anyhow, or mm-hmm. I, I just, I just had somebody, I, I did an interview earlier today. Somebody asked me that same question really? um, because they had a beloved dog uh, in kind of the same situation. Um, uh, you know, it is a terrible thing. Dogs should live longer. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there, when you ask, is there anything to be done? Um, well, you know, as a dog owner, and I'm sure that your dogs um, are experiencing everything. So I can't probably tell you 
anything, you know, exercise and good food and mm -hmm. a lot to love, all that kind of stuff. Um, you're going to have a dog that has a high quality of life for longer. Um, wolves in the wild live six, seven years uh, in captivity, maybe 13. Um, uh, when you ask me, is there anything that can be done? There actually already has been because there are many uh, breeds of dogs that live, um, you know, up to 17, 18 years. Uh, that's much longer than a wolf uh, can live. Uh, and I think that's partly uh, due to some selection, whether it was intentionally for a long life, I don't know, but it's highly correlated with body size. So you have small dogs, as we're all familiar with living uh, longer. Mm -hmm. um, so in larger dogs, there seems to be some kind of constraint where uh, body size uh, limits how long you can live. We don't, we don't understand why. Um, but I can tell you that I participated in a study that we published this year, actually, um, where we were able to show that uh, larger dogs, as their bodies are senescing, um, their brains are not. So um, one of the predictions would be that as uh, larger dogs sort of, uh, you know, start to die, basically, senesce, um, their whole body, including their brain, begins um, uh, decline. Mm. Um, and uh, they basically have a er faster, earlier decline in everything. Mm. And it ends up that's not the case. Their brains are um, just like a, a seven-year-old small dog's brain would be. Um, so cognitively, they're not declining. It seems to be something about their body. So uh, if we were going to have larger dogs live longer, uh, at least the good news is if we could figure out how to do it, their brains would probably be fine. Because I've, are you familiar with Dr. Brian Sinclair? about with him and his work uh, he's doing a lot of work with like lifespan and looking into mm -hmm. the dna and the genes mm -hmm. uh for mm -hmm. humans mm -hmm. i was just curious to know if they're doing it for dogs because personally i like a lot more dogs <laughs> than, probably, <laughs> than probably people um, uh, i i don't know i'm sure i'm sure someone's working on it and and dogs are i mean i do know for instance that nih the national institute of health has funded uh, a long-term study looking at aging in dogs and mm -hmm. uh it, i don't think i think it's a much uh, it's more selfish study i don't think the goal is to help dogs live longer mm -hmm. it's to try to use dogs to help us understand aging in humans gotcha. um, but what's going to happen is uh, we are going to learn a lot about aging in dogs that mm -hmm. then can be used uh to help address uh that you know terrible problem there's nothing worse than a dog dying i know well as i mentioned before so my other dog is 15 she's my best friend as mm -hmm. oreo was to you mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um i i'm sure anybody listening that has an older dog gets what i'm saying so i took her to the vet yesterday she's been dealing with some ex just random anxiety for the last few weeks mm -hmm. i came mm -hmm. out of nowhere mm. um the vet is thinking it could be cognitive dysfunction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're looking into that mm -hmm. What is your, I guess, feedback on cognitive dysfunction? Like what, what exactly is it and can it be helped? What can we do there? Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one because um, sadly, what vet, I have a veterinarian um, uh, who is my postdoc who's now a professor at NC State and she actually studies uh, behavior and cognition and mm -hmm. she's very interested in questions of cognitive decline in dogs um, and, uh, and pain and its relationship to pain. Um, she, um, her name is Margaret Gruen, Dr. Gruen at uh, NC State. And um, basically how she's described it to me is that by the time a veterinarian can pick up cognitive decline, whatever's wrong is really, 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 really bad. Mm. Um, we don't, what I'm trying to say is we don't have very sensitive tools in the hands of veterinarians that can pick up cognitive decline mm. at early stages. 
Um, and the other thing is that even if we could, it's not that clear what we do about it, um, other than uh, exercise and good food and lots of love. Yeah. Um, but I can tell you what the data is. I can tell you that, um, you know, best evidence is, um, you know, by seven dogs uh, start to show a little bit of cognitive decline. Um, and, and uh, you know, the, I don't think the slope is that steep on it uh, until around 11. And then okay. around 11, 11 years old, some significant changes start to happen. Um, so by the time a dog's 15, I, I have no doubt that there's cognitive decline there. Yeah. I guess I'm being selfish and I'm just going to try to delay that as long as I possibly can. Well, uh, you can be really happy and, you know, uh, not remember anything or, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. so I'm not suggesting that uh, you can't have a happy dog or yeah. when I say there is cognitive decline, that just means, you know, maybe they could remember something for four or five minutes and now we're talking. They can well, she seems it. completely with it, which is weird. It's just the constant pacing anxiety kind right. of came out of nowhere. I can literally pinpoint a date of when it happened. Hmm. Um, so it was just like, she got a bath that day, shampoo, like all that stuff. She doesn't like any of that. So sure. I don't know if it's a traumatized, can dogs get trauma? Like that sure. lasts, that, that lasts uh, over a month. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. think so. I don't think that, I mean, if it's things that she normally would experience, I don't think that would be what it is, but, okay. but yeah, you can have a dog who, um, you know, think of dogs that are afraid of fireworks or whatever. I mean, yeah, for uh, sure. Uh, there are definitely things in a dog's life that could scare them for, and show you know, that type of anxiety for a while. Yeah. I know I'm kind of being semi-selfish here asking you personal questions, but I figure you are like the expert in this and I know no, there are, we're together. Go for it. There are, there are uh, listeners that are listening that probably can relate or will mm -hmm. be able to relate at some point. So I want to ask the questions that people can relate to and that are really wondering. Mm -hmm. um, it's, 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 it's difficult to see. It's, it's a tough thing to, to mm -hmm. be around. And like at the end of the day, I guess I got to remember 15 years is no joke. It's, Oh, that's a great, that's a great life for a dog that size. Yeah, that's pretty and, amazing. Yeah. And you're not alone. I mean, people, uh, you know, one of the big findings after Katrina, you may remember was that yeah. uh, the FEMA standards had to change about what to do with people's pets because mm. uh, dog owners in particular refused to uh, evacuate because there was no where to put their dogs because um, the you know federal government hadn't made plans for what to do with people's pets, which you can understand. Um, in an emergency, you know, listen, we're going to get the people. Um, but it, that's fine as long as the people don't view their pets as if they were people. Right. Uh, and so uh, the love is so strong, the bond so strong that people literally would risk their lives to stay with their dogs. So, so th that's when the standards change. So it's, it is a real thing. I mean, people, and, you know, obviously having experienced the loss of, uh, of a dog, it's, it's mm -hmm. awful, mm -hmm. awful, awful. Yeah. That's fine. Um, so with this being the time of COVID and the coronavirus, mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of people getting dogs these days, which I yeah. think is fantastic because this really is the best time to get a dog. If you're going to be home every day, there's no better mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. um, do you have any kind of recommendations or advice for somebody looking to get a dog? Yeah, I think the challenge uh, anytime you get a dog is, um, you know, how to uh, socialize, especially a young dog, and make sure that they get enough experiences in the world and with enough people and enough dogs so that when they grow up, uh, they're not scared. They're yeah. not, uh, you know, they're confident. You want to, just like you want a confident child who had a lot of good experiences so they could be confident, 
you want a confident dog, a dog that's not going to be nervous and fearful. And there are different personalities and temperaments, and some are going to be, uh, you know, more uh, easily socialized than others. But I think that's the challenge when we're all supposed to be physically distancing. Um, how do you get your dog in a situation where it can have enough of those interactions? You stay safe, but they still get the experiences they need. Uh, I, I think that's the big challenge. I loved when I, uh, in the book yesterday that I was reading your book, Genius of Dogs, how my older dog does not like thunder at all. So people mm-hmm. would introduce very quietly to like tapes, uh, sounds of thunder and gradually okay, yeah. getting used to it. That's yeah. fantastic. So, you know, I mean, but there's so many storms down here in North Carolina that mm-hmm. and fireworks and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. yeah, introducing that quietly and really calmly. Mm-hmm. That's, I never thought of that. That makes mm-hmm. complete sense. Um, with all your experience working with dogs, that's, I want to end this on more of a positive note. What's sure. The, What's like the greatest story or one that stuck with you? Like, oh, a dog did that. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. I kind of like the stories where, you know, I'm just like everybody else. I get, I get sucked into the dog saves person by X, you know, yeah. whatever they do, you know, yeah. uh, it could just be that, you know, uh, a, a child who has autism and they adopted a dog and the dog is a bridge to human social interaction they didn't have before. Um, you know, a, a service dog that gives a, a military veteran a new lease on life and uh, allows them to go out into the world and not be afraid. Or, you know, uh, I've worked with the military and dogs that, you know, found the bomb that protected the, the platoon and they're still here because of it. Uh, you know, all those stories are just like, whoa, that is just amazing. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, and there's, there are endless stories like that if you start to collect them. Yeah. And it's funny listening to you talk about, it. I'm smiling, you're smiling while you're saying this. Dogs are the, the greatest things, man. I, I'm so happy that you chose to research them. It's, that's must've been really cool. You must've had a lot of great experiences too. Like it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. What's uh, is there anything in the works today for you as far as dogs or any other animals? Uh, yeah, no, we're, uh, actively still studying dogs in a, in a big way. We, we have, uh, funding from the Navy and from the National Institute of Health and the AKC uh, Health Foundation in Raleigh uh, to study development. So uh, we're really interested in cognitive development and we're interested in what experiences when you socialize a puppy uh, might give them that confidence we were talking about. Um, and so unfortunately what that means is we have to raise a lot of puppies. Uh, so we, ha- we have the Duke Puppy Kindergarten and uh, we're raising puppies there and testing them, and uh, it's been a lot of fun. That's that's so fun. Like I said, volunteer. I'm right down the road. <laughs> <laughs> I will help. Um, so yeah, we can wrap this up, but I want to give you the opportunity to tell the listeners like where to find you, um, where to find your books, and is there anything you want to make them aware of, or maybe they can donate, or I know like wolves, like conservation and all that stuff. They could all use kind of funding, funding and money. Sure. If you're, if you're interested in wolves, go check out the wildlife science center, uh, their website. That's a great organization. Um, and you go learn about, uh, their work. Um, I mean, they're involved in the red wolf project here in North Carolina. They help us, our state, even though they're in Minnesota. So it's a good, uh, project for people, uh, North Carolinians to, uh, invest in. Uh, obviously, uh, if you're interested in learning about dogs, go check out the uh, Genius of Dogs and 
Uh, we have a new book called Survival of Friendliest. It's about what we've learned about human evolution uh, from dogs. So you go check that one out too. And both books are available anywhere you can buy books. That's my next read. And your website is brianhare.net. That's H-A-R-E.net. You got it. Brian, it's been a pleasure. I can talk dogs with you all day, every day. I appreciate you taking the time out of your day to, to talk with me. So much fun. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. And you can find me on the Pursuit of Happiness podcast on Instagram. Leave a comment about this and go find Brian. He's, he's an amazing, very smart guy, super friendly, obviously. And like I said, super, super thankful to have you. I appreciate it. So much fun. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.